So, so for this part of the talk, uh, I would like to introduce a little bit on uh, obviously this field of uh, perioperative neurocognitive disorders, and uh, in particular discuss uh, some of the initial work we did with uh, SPMs in regulating neuroinflammation and uh, memory dysfunction. So um, as a brief agenda for, for this part, um, we'll introduce uh, what is this field of perioperative neurocognitive disorders. and. Uh, you will see there are quite a few uh, nomenclature changes that are actually occurring uh, very recently at, at the beginning of this year. Uh, we discussed really why it was important for us to develop a preclinical model uh, to study both the pathogenesis and uh, try to modulate uh, cognitive dysfunction and this neuroinflammatory response. And uh, we're going to discuss the role of SPMs, particularly focusing of, uh, on, the, on the work that we started with uh, ATRBD1 and how this uh, um, modulates both uh, uh, memory as well as uh, neuroglia interaction in, in this preclinical model. So first of all, uh, what are perioperative neurocognitive disorders? Uh, I mean, these can be really seen as a spectrum of different conditions that occur following the postoperative period. Um, and based on uh, the time and, and some of the phenomenon that uh, patients show can be classified as uh, usually a sort of acute uh, within a few hours to a few days uh, after surgery, uh, post-operative delirium, to longer-lasting cognitive impairments that can last up to weeks, uh, months, and even years. Um, so it's been a lot of research uh, um, try to understand what is the, the, if this, is, this spectrum is a whole continuum or whether these are very separate entities. Uh, there is definitely um, epidemiological evidence suggesting that uh, both delirium and post-operative cognitive dysfunction may lead to permanent dementia, at least in subset of uh, at-risk patients. So for the purpose of this talk and also for the work that encompassed uh, preclinical research, we're really going to define uh, this perioperative neurocognitive disorder as a deterioration of intellectual function that is reflected both as memory as well as concentration impairments. Uh, as mentioned, they, are, they can be seen as very separate entities, although they do share similar uh, pathological processes, and we'll be discussing primarily on the role of neuroinflammation today. Uh, and indeed, for some patients, this is a continuum that uh, as they develop delirium, they go on with more subtle cognitive deficits and eventually permanent dementia. And as mentioned, there's been a lot of efforts in trying to standardize uh, the nomenclature for this cognitive field. So the latest is this perioperative neurocognitive disorders, and, and this has been really tried to um, standardize it based on dsm 5 type criteria. And uh, this will be something to stay tuned for, and uh, the new nomenclature uh, will be coming out uh, uh, earlier uh, this year in all major anesthesiology journals. So why this type of complication matter? Um, so first of all, it matters because uh, surgery uh, is, is a major problem these days. I mean, the amount of patients that uh, require surgery is over 50 million just in the United States alone. And, uh, um, and these cognitive impairments are common for a number of uh, very uh, simple and relatively common procedures. And this work was from uh, fairly recently from a group in uh, Australia by Liz Everett. And you can see the incidence of cognitive dysfunction in uh, two major subsets of patients that uh, often experience cognitive dysfunction, uh, orthopedic patients and uh, cardiac surgery patients. Wh what you can see here, if you focus on, uh, on these uh, two lines, uh, the top of hip uh, joint replacement and cabbage surgeries, you can see that indeed the uh, cardiac uh, still has a very much higher incidence of uh, cognitive dysfunction. 
uh, almost over 40% compared to roughly 20% for the orthopedic patients, this acutely, seven days after surgery. Uh, also, you will see that uh, by three months, uh, so within this more uh, posterior cognitive dysfunction uh, nomenclature, you get to see that uh, this is uh, pretty much independent from the type of surgery as well as anesthetics, and is roughly a 16 percent, and more conservatively from other studies that we'll be discussing, it's been always uh, this description of one in 10 that develops this type of longer lasting cognitive deficits. So. Um, this is uh, obviously important because uh, the projection for this type of procedure, uh, and here I highlighted just the, the neuro, sorry, the um, orthopedic uh, and cardiac, cardiac being the top one, uh, are, are going to be on the higher and steady uh, increase over the next few years. Uh, therefore, the likelihood for more and more patients to end up experiencing this type of complication is going to be uh, more substantial. And the other reason why this is important is because obviously uh, hospitalization leads uh, uh, to a significant amount of mor morbidity as well as mortality in these patients. And altogether, uh, it's already the cost for both delirium and cognitive dysfunction are over 150 billion uh, nationally in the United States. And so the other reason why the, this, this problem is really are, are, are critical for for our current society is the fact that, uh, I, yeah, I should have mentioned this also was featured last year. Uh, over over the cover page of, uh, of Science, an article by Mitch Leslie encompassing both the roles for preclinical and clinical advancement in this field. Um, the other reason why this matters is because, as you know, a lot of these problems are associated with aging and are primarily and highly prevalent in our adult uh, group of population. And this is uh, relatively nothing new. Uh, this was uh, the first study that, uh, at least one of the early studies, that showed uh, cognitive impairments uh, following a surgical procedure from uh, 1951. And uh, uh, Dr. Bedford already shown at that time that this was a very uh, crit a critical problem, especially within the geriatric uh, subset of, uh, of uh, patients. And uh, further studies, and uh, one of the seminal studies that was um, uh, included a, um, a multi-center European study was uh, also published in The Lancet uh, 20 years ago now showed also that aging was definitely one of the main and key risk factors for the development of uh, both acute, but in particular, these longer-lasting cognitive deficits. Uh, so what these studies uh, highlighted, as well as a bulk of uh, other uh, research over, over the multiple years uh, up to now, is really that uh, cognitive dysfunction is a very uh, multifactorial and, and complex pathology. Uh, to simplify, we can see uh, risk factors as uh, patient-related factors, where definitely advanced age is one of the uh, critical ones. Uh, the concept of uh, cognitive reserve and uh, synaptic plasticity as a preventive and protective uh, way for some of these patients uh, uh, to eventually develop uh, memory impairments or not is another critical step, as well as uh, comorbidities like underlying dementia, as well as metabolic syndrome, which are some of the major challenges in our current uh, medical care. The second part can be seen as uh, surgical-related uh, factors. We discussed uh, the implication of both orthopedic as well as cardiac surgery, uh, but definitely uh, what this study, for example, from uh, Mahler and colleagues show was the fact that if patients experience post-operative complications, like a respiratory infective, the likelihood of developing uh, also neurological complication is much higher. And also, if uh, patients require multiple operations across a uh, different uh, span, 
in their uh, in their lifetime are on high risk for future cognitive uh, decline. And the last part uh, uh, is is this area within the perioperative care and uh, where anesthetics and we're going to be discussing some of these implications from the preclinical model as well as a number of drugs that are regularly given to patients within the perioperative period have effects on uh, cognition and, uh, and mental function. So out of these factors, uh, um, there are definitely things obviously very hard to modify, like the patient-related factors, but uh, both within the surgery and the perioperative care, there is a lot of potential to eventually find strategies to prevent and ameliorate uh, these type of complications. So overall, it's a cognitive problem. So of course, there is a lot of neuropsychological testing done to evaluate these uh, these cognitive impairments. But uh, really, the key question that we had uh, for many years was what really happens to the brain of the patients after uh, major surgery. And uh, this study was uh, completed when uh, when I was at the Karolinska, and uh, it's the first study that really looked at uh, this uh, neuroinflammatory response in patients before and after surgery. Uh, so this was done by uh, PET imaging with this uh, PBR28 uh, ligand, which binds somehow specific to microglia, but also to other uh, subsets, including astrocytes. And uh, this is a baseline scan of a patient before undergoing an abdominal procedure. And this is the same subject three, three months afterwards. And you can see a significant uptake of uh, PBR28 across the brain. And uh, this patient uh, indeed shown sign of a cognitive impairment as, uh, as it was tested through the neuropsychological tests. So I want to illustrate this because I think it's always important to remember these are effects from peripheral surgery. This is not direct brain injury. And uh, this is definitely, as mentioned, seen across multiple type of procedures. The other thing that is important is that uh, so far, a lot of the studies that have been looking at different type of anesthetics show that there is really no difference between uh, uh, whether patients are exposed to under general anesthesia or regional anesthesia. So we think it's primarily a response and activation of the innate immune system through uh, surgical stimulation and uh, surgical injury. So of course, uh, this is through uh, neuroimaging. Uh, this is something that has been shown through also other type of studies and other biomarkers. These are some examples of initial work uh, looking at uh, CSF biomarkers of neuroinflammation after surgery uh, by Rod Eckenhoff and his group at uh, UPenn. You can see that in this case also, there is a, this was within a very acute time point, uh, two days following surgery, uh, CSF levels of both IL-6, IL-10, and TNF-alpha were significantly increased uh, in, in patients after surgery. So these biomarkers, regardless of whether it was a regional anesthetic or a general, Correct. it didn't matter, they still so these studies uh, were did not necessarily evaluate uh, the biomarkers within the different two uh -huh. groups, uh, uh, but the previous, uh, in terms of cognitive outcomes, were looked at specifically on that, and they couldn't find differences in overall incidence. Um, these uh, biomarkers, uh, so when, when I was at UCSF, we also looked at specifically within the orthopedic uh, patient group. And you can see also a significant number of uh, similar in terms like TNF, IL-6, uh, but also uh, more related to monocytes activity. That's something we're going to be discussing more also through the preclinical models that we've been looking at. And importantly, this was a very uh, one of the really first studies looking at this uh, CSF in uh, delirium patient. This, uh, this was uh, in this specific study. And uh, although they were very limited, so it was 11 patients, uh, actually the one that showed the highest response 
in terms of pro-inflammatory mediators are the one that uh, end up developing cognitive impairments, at least delirium in the acute post-operative period. Uh, so there is definitely evidence for neuroinflammation in, in both uh, from, from both neuroimaging studies as well as the CSF biomarkers. Oh, sorry, how I do miss that. Is that baseline pre-surgery? Baseline, yes. Oh, okay. Pre-surgery is before, yeah. Yeah, just before uh, undergoing surgery, yeah. Um, so the, um, for us, of course, was uh, in interesting, and especially given this importance of uh, so many common players here, as you see in terms of IL-6, uh, I1B, and TNF-alpha, that uh, these might be viable ways uh, to potentially prevent uh, uh, neuroinflammation or at least cognitive dysfunction in patients. However, these are really um, have been shown, and, and some of our work in preclinical models also contributed to this. That uh, these are not really safe and viable targets for a perioperative approach. Uh, they have a lot of uh, potential side effects, as well as the risk for immunosuppression within the perioperative period are very high. Therefore, we thought to look at this uh, and try to better understand, obviously, how to we can possibly modulate safely the immune response uh, following uh, surgical manipulation. Uh, so before moving into the uh, into the uh, mouse model and what uh, and the work that we we started, I want to just uh, briefly outline some of the key mechanisms whereby the immune system communicates to the central nervous system, and these were elegantly uh, summarized in, in this review now a few years old, uh, and pretty much uh, we still classify this as this very at least the two very distinct pathway, uh, and and then this humoral that sort of like overlaps to some extent with the, the humor response. And uh, the um, importance is that uh, the, the complexity of this system is, is obviously pretty uh, profound. And it's not very easy to understand uh, how these uh, uh, inflammatory molecules really lead to neuroinflammation, especially when uh, we use models like surgery that entail for many different mm -hmm. changes that would be discussed uh, during, during this talk. But in general, we know that uh, there is this uh, uh, very classical sort of like uh, activation of uh, CNS response through uh, peripheral uh, cytokines by relatively permeable areas uh, within the blood-brain barrier, like the circumventricular organs. So it's almost like direct access of some of these cytokines into the brain. We have a very um, active program ourselves looking at uh, neuronal signaling and, and the role of the, especially of the vagus nerve and autonomic signaling in uh, mediating uh, and, and relaying information from the periphery to the CNS following uh, trauma. And there is also obviously this uh, response of uh, cellular mediators that we'll be discussing primarily uh, through uh, monocytes activation in these models that uh, leads to direct brain uh, injury and, and uh, neuroinflammation. So in order to try to understand and clarify some of these uh, pathways in our models, we decided that it was key to uh, develop uh, a preclinical uh, platform that could allow us to study all of this complexity in, in a fairly uh, clinical and, and uh, translational manner. So uh, we established this uh, orthopedic uh, stabilized tibia fracture procedure that is very similar to what the patient would undergo for their hip replacement. And here, basically, what we perform is an internal uh, fixation with a pin in the tibia of a mouse, and then uh, we, we perform an osteotomy. Uh, so we can recapitulate a number of different uh, components uh, that are found in, uh, in uh, common surgeries, so blood loss, uh, tissue trauma, and uh, bone damage. And what we've been interested obviously, is been trying to understand how the innate immune response gets activated and what are the signaling pathways that uh, we can potentially modulate and uh, track all the way up to the central nervous system. 
So just to relate to some of the images shown in the humans uh, with uh, neuroinflammation, indeed we found that uh, um, uh, microglia, in this case as uh, IBA1 staining, gets significantly activated in mice already at a young, so these are adults, 12 weeks old mice, and definitely there is this age-dependent uh, uh, greater neuroinflammatory response that we can see in mice that are over 20 months old. Uh, some of the focus now in the lab is really try to understand how these cells get activated. Uh, so we have a number of assays, uh, including like uh, tissue clarification, that we can really try to understand and interrogate individual motility of cells in uh, both uh, ex vivo as well as uh, uh, in vivo using two-photon imaging in collaboration with uh, some of our colleagues at the University of Rochester Medical Center. And uh, so in general, what we can see in the, in the model is that uh, neuroinflammation does occur also in animals, and uh, it's to some extent, uh, although the timeline obviously is different from a human to a mouse, uh, we can recapitulate very similar processes in the brain of these, on these animals. So to go over uh, pretty much the whole uh, uh, literature published work that we've been doing in, in, this, in this work, I've sort of put all of this in, in, in this uh, summary slide, and basically, uh, initial work has really been focused on uh, understanding what are the key cytokines uh, and uh, the danger-associated molecular patterns that are released following the operation. And so we found that uh, following the surf, following this, uh, this procedure, we have a very distinct uh, kinetic of different pro-inflammatory cytokines, sort of like similar to what's seen in the CSF of, uh, of some of the patients that leads to activation of uh, peripheral immune cells, uh, including monocytes and, and neutrophils. Uh, we have a lot of interest in how this uh, affects blood-brain barrier and endothelial function. Uh, and in fact, we found that uh, this peripheral inflammatory response is not self-limited to the peripheral compartment, but indeed uh, gets access to the CNS, both through humoral as well as the neuronal signaling. Uh, the work we did through the blood-brain barrier really showed that uh, we have acute opening of the barrier within 24 hours after surgery. This enables for uh, monocytes, in particular CCR2-positive cells, to actually access uh, the brain and enter into the parenchyma. And this, we think, is still a, a critical step that really leads to the activation of uh, resident glias, uh, both uh, seen as microglia activation as well as astrocytes, as would be discussed in uh, some of the implications for the SPMs on these two cell types. And uh, of course, what we've seen is that this neuroinflammatory response, uh, glia activation, and uh, cytokine release uh, leads, of course, to uh, impairments in synaptic plasticity. Uh, we've been looking at uh, and we'll be discussing some of the effects at the level of uh, synapse and the glutamine release and uh, long term potentiation also with the SPMs. But importantly, and sorry to reiterate on this complexity of the signaling, is not uh, just as simple as, as this part. In fact, uh, recently we also discovered that uh, through this autonomic response in the spinal cord in particular, we have a very important uh, uh, pain-related signaling pathways through uh, activation and upregulation of uh, um, nociceptive signaling and neuropeptides of the spinal cord that has been uh, related to changes in neurogenesis and potentially as uh, early uh, substrate for this uh, neuronal and uh, cognitive dysfunction. So this is basically the um, kind of like a 360 view on, on what the models has been able to tell us and, and some of the overlaps that we found with, uh, with the clinical uh, evaluation and, and the studies. And importantly, I think it's uh, sorry to reiterate also on some of the previous question, is really what we see is, uh, 
and obviously especially in the early work uh, by doing all different type of controls, is that this is a response from uh, the surgical trauma. So if animals are just exposed to anesthetics, and this again can be done uh, within uh, 15 to 20 minutes as a surgical procedure, we don't really see too much on a, of an effect, at least in adult mice. Uh, as mice aged, uh, there is definitely a higher vulnerability, and this is something that we're also still very interested in understanding in terms of resilience pathways and, uh, and, and ways that also anesthetics might uh, affect this, this type of response. But generally speaking, it's uh, immune response uh, triggered by uh, this aseptic trauma. So um, following this, uh, uh, obviously, there's been a lot of focus and, and, and potential uh, interest in, in these type of problems. This was an editorial a few years old now showing that uh, it's similar to many other organs. We have to really start to think about the brain also as, uh, as a potentially and maybe even greater uh, vulnerable uh, target organs from uh, different type of surgeries. And importantly, as uh, these um, complications become more and more common with the aging uh, population, there is also a, an importance in trying to find ways to prevent these, uh, these uh, complications and, and, and these problems to occur. So we've been very interested in looking at different uh, preventable strategies, and uh, since uh, we are discussing SPMs here today, we're just going to be focusing on, on the latest uh, work uh, uh, focusing on, on uh, SPMs, RBD1, then we're going to be discussing some of the ongoing research with, uh, with other, um, other molecules. Uh, but as I spare with you the, the previous work that was done into the field, at least in the preclinical arena, looking at a more classical uh, immune targeted approach like using biologics uh, that have been very effective, but as mentioned before, may lead to uh, possible pr problems in translation. So let's focus on, on some of the SPM work that, uh, that we've been doing. And of course, it uh, doesn't require too much of an introduction here, but of course, uh, complete resolution is indeed the optimal uh, outcome that uh, we expect to have following any type of uh, surgery, injury, and, and any type of stressors in general. Of course, the field was uh, really spearheaded by the seminar work from uh, Dr. Suran in Harvard and his colleagues. And uh, through a um, uh, number of uh, studies and decades of work, he really, uh, his, his lab really elucidated a number of uh, these uh, pathways and uh, processes involved with the resolution of uh, inflammation. So it's now well appreciated that uh, following any type of injury, we have uh, an acute inflammatory response, uh, uh, starting <coughs> from an edema, uh, recruitment of uh, PMNs, as well as uh, in the later phase, monocytes to clear the debris and eventually uh, achieve optimal and complete resolution. Uh, what uh, Dr. Cern and colleagues were really instrumental in showing is that this was very active process. It was not just this uh, dissipation of, uh, of uh, molecules over time, but as uh, injury starts, the resolution machinery also gets triggered. And therefore, we wanted to uh, use this approach, uh, especially given uh, the type of models and the type of question that we have when surgery can be uh, timely um, started and, and assessed and, and understand whether perioperative approaches using SPNs might provide a relief in both in terms of neuroinflammation and cognitive outcomes. And again, the reason that led us uh, to this was really the fact that although there are so many different type of uh, anti-inflammatory and potential targets that we could look at, including like things like TNF that uh, we've been looking in the past as well as uh, interleukin-1 receptor antagonist, uh, really keeping in mind this concept of uh, full resolution and, and providing safe and very limited uh, side effects has been shown so far with the SPMs was really 
critical to evaluate this into this uh, into this model. So for this part, uh, I would like to just focus on uh, some of the DHA derivatives uh, of the resolvings, in particular focusing on resolving D1, uh, and then later we'll be discussing more on uh, some of the work with uh, with Maresins, given the interest on, on monocytes activation in the model. Uh, so for what we did with the resolvings was uh, pretty much uh, uh, initial understand, like study to understand whether this would affect uh, the memory outcome in, in this model. Uh, so we treated animals with this 100 nanograms uh, per dose, which is something extremely low compared to some of the work that we did with biologics and other compounds. And uh, in this paradigm, uh, mice are, tri are uh, tested under this uh, trace fear conditioning um, protocol and uh, were pre-treated with RVD1 and then tested three days later for their cognitive function. It's just to briefly show trace conditioning. This is classic Pavlovian preconditioning. So we train animals uh, to learn an environment, in this case, this box with uh, a noxious stimulation, so a foot shock. Uh, when the mouse gets a foot shock, uh, it will jump. And uh, as, as an outcome of this, we start to uh, remember that the space in which it's been trained is, is obnoxious. So the way that uh, the animal respond to this is by f showing freezing. So the f uh, freezing behavior, so lack of mobility, as is an indicator of that uh, the environment, the space in which it's trained is, is not pleasant. So therefore it just freezes and stay in a corner. Uh, so we can quantify this uh, through, uh, through the, the computer system. And um, you can see that animals that uh, undergo mm -hmm. surgery have a decrease in their freezing behavior. So that indicates that uh, these animals do not remember that this is a bad environment, so they keep moving about. And if we treat these animals with uh, aspirin trigger and resolving D1, you can see that we're able to uh, significantly restore back to baseline their cognitive abilities. Uh, so this is very much uh, hippocampal dependent uh, memory. Uh, of course, we've been looking at this uh, um, uh, with, with many other type of uh, tests uh, and the current work that we're developing is actually to make this type of uh, behavioral test uh, more similar to the clinical conditions. And, and this is something that we're currently actively uh, studying uh, in my lab. Uh, of course, if we looked at uh, different type of controls in terms of like general locomotion, um, some sort of anxiety level, although there is, there is more into anxiety probably that we know so far, and these are, are really unchanged. So suggesting that there's really this type of memory uh, hippocampal dependent dysfunction that uh, is affected at least as part of, uh, of, this, uh, of this model. Uh, of course, we're interested in, uh, this is the ultimate sort of like phenotype. Uh, um, SPMs do affect uh, memory and they can restore uh, cognitive mm. dysfunction after surgery, but indeed the question is how is that uh, mediated? Uh, so we started to look at this uh, from uh, a few different uh, angles and uh, Part of this was uh, just try to understand uh, in an ex vivo preparation how SPMs and if SPMs would affect the synaptic plasticity. And so we did uh, classical uh, electrophysiology, so in the, this preparation for long-term potentiation. And uh, in, in these uh, experiments, you can see that uh, if, uh, so we take uh, slices from animals uh, that either were controlled, they underwent uh, surgery, and they went surgery with uh, RBD1 treatment. And you can see that uh, with this uh, in, in the gray line at the bottom is that animals that have uh, underwent surgery, they had uh, impairments in their ability of eliciting long-term potentiation. And this was fully restored in animals that were pre-treated with RBD1. 
Uh, so you can appreciate this also through uh, this uh, histogram quantification. And you can see that again, between the control and surgeries, uh, basically um, in, in surgery with, uh, with the treatment, there is no difference. And um, of course, this was uh, following a pre-treatment approach, again, assuming that uh, patient undergoes surgeries and, and this is an elective procedure. But of course, there was an interest also in understanding whether how far we can push a treatment with uh, resolving uh, uh, within the perioperative period. And so we did a, a study looking at uh, rescuing um, this type of phenomenon. So this was actually post-operative uh, 24 hours after. And uh, then the slicing and the LTP was elicited after three days. And you can see that uh, there was, um, uh, although it wasn't as uh, significant as following the pretreatment approach, we were still able to improve uh, the LTP formation in animals after um, RVD1 treatment. And I think this is interesting and it still speaks to a point of these SPMs probably having multiple effects, not just uh, uh, on uh, the neuroinflammatory response that will be discussed, but maybe also as a direct, direct uh, neuronal and, and uh, plasticity type of response. Of course, this is not limited to just RVD1. Uh, within the uh, other type of uh, direct brain injury, in this case, uh, uh, stroke models, the study from Bazan and his colleagues also show that, for example, neuroprotecting D1 also has uh, uh, important protective effects following stroke onset. So obviously there is uh, room for both a preemptive as well as uh, rescuing type of experiments with, with SPMs. So um, next, obviously, we're interested in this neuroinflammatory response. Uh, and uh, we've been particularly focusing for these studies on the role of astrocytes, primarily because uh, astrocytes really serve as uh, this type of buffer between uh, uh, the neuronal activity, as we look for, for example, with, this, uh, with the previous experiments looking at uh, LTP formation, as well as uh, our sort of like this bridge between uh, immune uh, and, and control of the homeostasis within the CNS together with the microglias. And what we found is that um, following surgery, there is uh, uh, changes, and, and this is still something that we're highly interested, especially now through uh, the use of tissue clarification techniques to uh, characterize and, 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 and understand throughout the whole uh, brain how, is, uh, how astrocytes activity is mediated. I'm sorry. And uh, here you can see that at least within uh, the hippocampus uh, CA1, there is a significant change in, in the morphology of these cells after surgery. And uh, if we treated animals with uh, RVD1, you can see that the morphology remained much more closer uh, to the control. So with this very l uh, large uh, and ramified uh, philopodia. And here again, there are uh, fractal analysis of these responses and the quantification of the areas of coverage of these astrocytes. You can see that animals that were treated really had a significant improvement and retention of their uh, classical morphology in, in this uh, uh, following the surgical procedure. Uh, of course, uh, um, we like always to look for uh, bigger pictures and not just try to focus on uh, single uh, cell types. And uh, this uh, we did also uh, for this type of experiments, we also look at uh, general hippocampal uh, gene patterns. And uh, this was just, uh, it's now a few years old, it was an anti-matrix uh, platform. You can see that uh, uh, again, looking at uh, all different genes, that uh, animals that were treated with ATRVD1 had significant improvements, uh, so shown by these darker shades and even upregulation of a number of pathways. Uh, so just to simplify and filter out all of this, uh, if we cluster them by uh, gene ontology groups, you can see that uh, surgery had uh, significant effects on this cluster of genes, 
primarily focusing on really olfactory, uh, different hemoperception as well as uh, cognition and uh, neurological processes. And importantly, if uh, animals were treated uh, with uh, ATRPD1, you can see that uh, we were able to basically get baseline levels, uh, complete restoration in, in at least for uh, almost of this pathway, but of particular interest to the one related to, this, uh, to the cognitive and neurological outcomes. Um, so in, in these studies, what we also shown before, as I mentioned um, from, from the initial uh, schema, is that uh, monocytes uh, and uh, uh, <coughs> the activation and the infiltration of these CCR2 positive cells is a critical uh, pathological process in the, in the process of neuroinflammation. And uh, this was shown through uh, different models. Uh, this was an example from uh, a Nokian mouse model where uh, we have both microglia and uh, monocytes under the CCR2 promoter tagged with a GFP and an RFP. And you can see that following surgery, there is this significant increase in, in levels of CCR2 positive cells in the hippocampus, which wouldn't be otherwise there. Uh, so we thought uh, to look at uh, uh, the specific effects of uh, RBD1 on um, uh, bone marrow-derived monocytes and see whether the effect that we see in this neuroinflammatory response can be related to, to monocytic uh, modulation and the activation of these cells. Uh, so for this, um, sort of like in vitro experiments, we've shown that uh, administration of uh, RBD1 in, in a model of LPS-stimulated uh, BMDMs was able to significantly reduce uh, uh, superoxide production, so this was uh, NADPH-dependent uh, activity and release, as well as, uh, although not uh, completely, was able to significantly attenuate uh, levels of TNF-alpha release in the medium of, uh, of, this, of these cells. And I think this is important because obviously gives an opportunity to study cells uh, not just within uh, the CNS, but perhaps even from uh, easier uh, compartments like plasma and, and blood. And uh, these studies were some, some work uh, shown by uh, Milan Fiala at uh, UCLA, uh, where he harvested uh, uh, monocytes from patients uh, with uh, ALS. And indeed, these they showed uh, upon stimulation a very significant TNF-alpha response and he was able to reduce and almost uh, completely obliterate this response if we co-incubate uh, these cells with RBD1. So showing that there is probably um, an important uh, targets and an important regulation of these peripheral cells into the model. Uh, so if we kind of like, try to understand and just uh, simplify this in, in a schema, we see that following surgery in uh, peripheral cells like monocytes, we have um, activation of different uh, cytokines, like we've shown for TNF, uh, IL-1, IL-6, as well different uh, damage-associated molecular patterns. Uh, activation and uh, release of these uh, pro-inflammatory cells, of course, uh, triggers uh, further inflammation that uh, eventually should go back to homeostasis, but if not, leads to this uh, excessive neuroinflammatory uh, response that, that leads to CNS dysfunction and, and memory impairments. But of course, uh, as the inflammation is initiated, it also triggers uh, uh, resolving pathways. And uh, obviously this feedback loop, if it's fully integrated and perhaps boosted with uh, the administration of SPMs, can indeed uh, reduce uh, uh, neurological impairments after uh, surgery. And of course, uh, there are a number of other systemic effects that uh, we've been looking at with the model. Again, looking at these general biomarkers uh, in, in plasma, we have a significant reduction of uh, IL-6, as well as something that we're still uh, in the process of understanding on, on how RVDs uh, um, affect uh, other pathways of resolution, and in this case, for example, the lipoxin A4 
uh, as we found this initial uh, sort of like restoration of, of levels in, in, in plasma, but yet this indeed requires more, more studies for the elucidation of the how different SPMs and receptors get integrated into the model. Um, also, it's just uh, interesting in terms of like other side effects and profiles. We looked at both uh, uh, liver enzymes and uh, ALT and ASTs, and also to speak to the point that uh, anesthetics alone don't do really much into these models. You can see that even for this type of very broad and unspecific uh, tissue injury response, there was really no effect uh, following anesthesia administration. But indeed, if animals were treated with uh, um, RVD1, they had the lower levels of, uh, of both ALT and ASTs. Uh, I think one side that I also want to add, again, uh, thinking back on, on some of the slides shown before, is that, of course, it's not just the regulation of this humoral component. As mentioned, this uh, model elicits a very strong uh, pain-related signaling, and this is just an example of uh, some key markers like GAN, MPY, and BDNF expression on the spinal cord level. And uh, uh, so just to remind you that it's not probably just a single effect, single targeted effect on monocytes or astrocytes or neurons, but it's probably the whole uh, sort of like combination of this neuron and humoral response that the SPMs indeed target at, at multiple levels. And uh, the whole balance out of these uh, studies really showed uh, the improved outcome in terms of memory and, and cognition. Uh, so I think for this, uh, I'd like to bring this uh, to, to a summary and see if so I get some of the feedback from you, is that uh, we've shown that uh, obviously POCD and these cognitive impairments are very complex multifactorial pathologies, especially in patients that uh, have multiple different uh, risk factors and vulnerability associated when they come in for a surgical procedure. Uh, indeed, there is a lot of... Uh, uh, different type of molecular targets, uh, whether it's underlying neurodegeneration that provides a significantly higher risk uh, for these patients to uh, underlying um, comorbidities, uh, cardiovascular disorders, and so forth that affect endothelial function, to already maybe uh, impaired uh, resolution programs for many patients that uh, come into the surgery and, and they're not in optimal state to undergo extensive procedures. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, SPMs indeed provide uh, good targets for modulation of a number of these processes, uh, not just related to inflammation and immune response. Uh, so I think I've shown you that uh, uh, surgery indeed is a very strong uh, immune activator and uh, this uh, inflammatory response arising from different type of trauma leads to glia and uh, neurodisruption and inflammation in, within the brain. Uh, we've seen that uh, SPMs are able to regulate a number of different targets, including both neuro, uh, resident uh, glia population within the brain, as well as the peripheral uh, immune cells like monocytes. And indeed, uh, uh, the ultimate effects is that obviously uh, RVD1, as well as a number of other SPMs, are able to restore and prevent uh, neur neuronal dysfunction uh, after this type of uh, surgical manipulation, as well as uh, other models as well. So I think this opens up uh, to a lot of discussion that I'm looking forward to for today. And uh, in particular, where are we going with this type of uh, field? And of course, there is a lot to do still with understanding the, what are the real, the, the, the key mechanisms that uh, underline this neuroinflammatory response following surgery. 
and what are the key targets, if there are any specific targets uh, to uh, boost resiliency uh, before and within the perioperative uh, period. I think that uh, based on uh, the increasing amount of preclinical work uh, and uh, clinical discoveries in terms of biomarkers and better characterization of the pathogenesis of this complication, it's time to think about uh, intervention studies looking at SPMs as well as uh, the concept of uh, immunonutrition and, and the work that uh, you're all doing uh, to see whether uh, targeted interventions might be a way to prevent uh, these uh, cognitive impairments in uh, at least a subset of, uh, of patients at risk for cognitive dysfunction. And of course, uh, I think I've shown you that uh, there are a number of uh, biomarkers ranging from um, the advance and, and maybe the top of the pyramid of neuroimaging with uh, PET imaging down to uh, CSF and plasma that provide uh, pretty good substrates for understanding and looking uh, in terms of modulating this, uh, this neuroinflammatory response, which I think integrating this with an intervention might provide a good uh, subset for monitoring and understanding the pathogenesis and, uh, and the long-term outcomes of, uh, of these patients. So this, uh, uh, I'd like to acknowledge the team uh, that has been doing all this work. Uh, the RBD was pretty much uh, all, that, uh, all, all done at the Karolinska when I was there. Um, now there is a lot of emphasis in other uh, SPMs that we're going to be discussing for the rest uh, uh, of, the, of the talks here, uh, in particular in my resins, um, as well as annexing from work uh, spearheaded by uh, Zishuan Zhang in my lab. Uh, there is uh, another side of, like as I mentioned, on, on the, how the vagus and the autonomic regulation might relate into the SPMs, and basically the, the whole team is really trying to obviously uh, building from preclinical research up to clinical work and uh, Miles uh, Berger here is, is the example of the other side of, of this uh, part of, of the work looking at the patients and uh, collecting CSF and looking into neuronal outcomes. Uh, so with that, uh, I'd like to thank you for your attention and be happy to take any questions.